I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. As we said last week, we are picking up with our discussion of pregnancy and childbirth by talking about the actual process of giving birth in this episode and kind of the culmination of everything we were talking about in the last episode, because there are just as many kind of weird medical theories that go along with childbirth. It's just as kind of a mystical process as before, but now with the added danger of it being actually fatal for two of our queens. So just sort of the disclaimer right off the bat that we are going to be talking about some things in not too graphic detail, but still that may be upsetting or disturbing to some people. So just kind of proceed with caution. Um, this is going to be a, a heavy one. Yeah, I mean, this this episode is, isn't really one we could get away with not doing. And I know we, we kind of skirted around different ways of approaching it or, you know, if we could incorporate it with, with other things. But, you know, when you're looking at early modern motherhood, childbirth, surprise, is an inevitable part of it. And also, sadly, so is death. Yes, I think it is, to some of them it could have been daunting, but as we'll see as we go through this episode, they found ways to kind of seek comfort not only from each other, but from, you know, religion, and we'll, we'll get into that. So it's also, a, I think, a uniquely female space and a uniquely powerful female space that we don't often explore in that much detail. One of the points that we made in our last episode was that this process, I mean, we still sort of do see it as kind of a, a mystical feminine process, but w the more you read about it from the perspective of people in the early modern period, like the literature that accompanies it, it's a weird paradox of people being completely in awe of the process of giving new life, but also the violence of it. And um, a lot of the, you know, the church teachings that the pain of it is, um, you know, punishment for the sin of women and everything. So I just, I think it's interesting that there's that dichotomy of it being a completely, you know, awe-inspiring process, but also something that is violent and bloody and, results in fatalities for both the women and the children so like you were saying it's something that once our queens learned they were pregnant it it was on the horizon that i'm going to have to go through this terrifying process what we'll also see is in this episode and you know in, in future ones it doesn't limit the emotional response that uh, that a mother has if their child dies or you know if you look at Henry VIII when J Jane Seymour died these these people are completely devoid of emotion yes they understand the dangers of it but it, as we just said there they understand the need for it but that you can't separate the, the the emotion from it to kind of recap from where we left off last time the queen once she's getting close enough to her due date she is put into her, quote, confinement or her laying in, which is when she goes into um, the queen's apartments and they're almost completely sealed off to what they thought, you know, aid in the health of the baby and to 
also comfort the mother and she, the idea was to reserve her energy for when the time comes that she's going to have to go through this huge ordeal so basically they're just sitting around waiting for her to go into labor like that that meme from the office of like it's happening and everyone kind of springs into action so i thought it was interesting that the first thing that um, a queen's attendants would do when she started her labor pain was they would kind of undress her to make her as comfortable as possible. Um, so like our equivalent of, you know, getting into your sweatpants or something, they would put her in a shift. They would get her into a bed to make her comfortable. They would take off all of her jewelry and her rings and everything. But with the added caveat that they didn't want her to be wearing anything uh, that was small or had laces or anything because they didn't want to have anything near the baby potentially that could harm it or like strangle it. Like we said, there's always this dichotomy of like, oh, it's exciting and we want you to be comfortable and everything, but also your baby is going to die. I quite like the idea that um, before labor actually started that they might have a bath just to kind of relax. Again, I think it's, it's worth hammering home that idea that while some of these things might seem a bit strange to us, they're not really. And some of them actually translate over even now. Because this was a process that they knew would potentially take a really long time. Jane Seymour's labor, for example, lasted for two days. So the idea of, okay, let's get you into the bath and let's get you as relaxed as possible. You know, it's well-intentioned because they're like, let's conserve your strength. Which I thought was interesting that once the midwives come into the picture, a lot of the methods, not all of them, certainly, but a lot of the methods, depending on the midwives, are actually modern in that sense that they are concerned with relaxation and um, they give massages and everything to calm the mother. And we said last time when we were talking about confinement, the chamber itself is a feminine space. And we'll talk about this later on in the episode, but with few exceptions, there are no men allowed inside the chamber. So the people attending the queen are actually midwives. And oh, there would be a team of them, although only one would be allowed to touch the royal person, like the lead midwife would be the one who actually delivered the baby. Well, I think with, with that in mind, what you need to do here is dig into the role of the midwife a little bit more, because they are extremely important through this process. You know, these are experienced midwives, potentially mothers themselves as well. So they, they have this intimate knowledge that isn't widely accessible and it's not discussed outside of, you know, these, these rooms, you know, and it's one of the few spaces that we can kind of see women operating in Tudor England in those positions of authority. The extent of the authority that they take on is really, really interesting um, because they are actually um, granted a dispensation by the church that if the child, a child is born, and it's not looking like it's going to survive, and that's a key thing, the child has to be alive, um, they can perform a baptism for that child, almost like an emergency baptism, and it's recognised as fully legitimate by the church. So it's one of the, it is the only space that we see women performing sacraments where they're not criticised or fined or killed or, you know, anything like that for it. You know, they are the authority in the space, and I, I know it sounds like I'm really hammering it home, but it is massively important. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I was somebody who in this period was having to go through this process, I would want somebody with me who has either gone through it or has seen so many people go through it that they know the practical in and outs. That being said, we're going to start talking about 
a lot of different things that midwives and the attendants would do to help our queens through the process of giving birth. And as we said last episode, we're not trying to talk about them in a patronizing way because a lot of these are going to sound potentially very funny. But we are trying to kind of understand their experience. And part of that is that there were a lot of little traditions and old wives tales and everything that in some respects were kind of perpetuated by the midwives. So one of the first ways that the midwives would kind of make themselves useful once they arrived on the scene was to start relieving pain. It's a big thing that we talk about with childbirth. It hurts. Um, And as we said, according to Christian traditions, it's supposed to almost kind of be a punishment to women because of the original sin of Eve. Like, you know, we're, we're still harping on that. It's a weird dichotomy of like, it's seen as a holy kind of experience to go through this pain, but at the same time, it is excruciating as many women well know today. It hasn't changed. So how are we remedying the pain and how are we getting somebody like Jane Seymour who's going through this for two days How are we getting her through it? And the answer is with just a lot of natural remedies and with things that could potentially calm the mother. And it's thanks to the midwives that a lot of these things are introduced into the birthing chamber. But there's also a space made here for an intercession of religious relics, especially pre-Reformation. So what I mean here is these are meant to be objects that have religious significance um, and are meant to um, to help with certain things. And that there's one of the main ones is Our Lady's Girdle. It was a relic that was held at Westminster Abbey, and it was meant to provide sort of support and uh, relief for expectant mothers. Elizabeth of York called for it, and so did Jane Seymour. Even if I think we can't get into that mindset, I mean, I think what we do at times of discomfort or pain, we will look for things that comfort us. And in a world where you do not have painkillers or traditional or pain relief as we understand it, you're going to reach for the thing that you you understand. In the same way that, you know, Catherine of Aragon, um, when she was pregnant the, the first time with Henry, she was said to have potentially laid a cross on her belly to provide that support and that power for her as a way of channeling her pain and and providing her with comfort. There's something to be said for, like you said, whatever brings you comfort. And if you're experiencing such debilitating pain that you need to focus on the things that bring you personal comfort and joy, go for it. In her book, uh, The Private Lives of the Tudors, Tracy Borman makes the point, too, that when you're praying and when you're going through, like, kind of chants and hymns and everything, it's just an easy way to distract yourself from the pain. It's something else to think about. Like, if you're reciting a rosary, you're not necessarily thinking about the pain. It just, it takes your mind off of it, and it does help. Sticking with the idea of it being a religious experience, especially for Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII, they went on pilgrimage to, to Walsingham, which was a famed uh, uh, site for intercessions from the Virgin Mary. So a lot of what that shrine was then dedicated to was people who were needed help with health problems, fertility problems, or the arrival, the safe arrival of children and childbirth and things like that. They actually went just after Henry was born, and then Catherine goes a few years later as well to um, help with the safe delivery of another child as well. So not just the experience of childbirth, but everything leading up to that is deeply religious. And again, it's anything that you're going to find comfort in. On the flip side, though, there were actually a lot of 
physical remedies that they tried to relieve the pain. And this is where the midwives come in uh, or the, you know, maybe the experienced mothers that are at the bedside of the queen while she's in labor. Again, with a lot of these other things, some of them range from the what to the, oh, that makes sense. Uh, So like one of the things that the midwives would tell a woman to do was walk around. They would also give massages. They would massage a woman's abdomen. If she was going through a particularly tough contraction, they would massage her back, um, you know, where a lot of the pain comes in, just to give some physical relief, warm compresses, you know, little cloths and everything, Uh, ointments that have like maybe some soothing herbs in them that can be spread over the skin with a cloth you know, any kind of little thing that might provide some even temporary relief. But then there were, there were some too that are a little bit like, we know it didn't do anything. Tell us about the weird and the wonderful of Tudor childbirth. Uh, your midwife might make you a potion of various herbs that are said to help with this, or they might give you a charm or something. So, you know, it's, this, this stuff isn't just in the 16th century, but we do see ed- sort of people grasping at anything to kind of get them through the process. And when you were going through this process for two days, like Jane Seymour or um, Anne Boleyn's labor with Elizabeth was said to have been, quote, particularly painful. So you need whatever kind of relief you can get. So when it actually came time to have the child, like once the labor had progressed enough, there were options for how we're going to do it. The biggest two, though, were um, every confinement chamber had a bed of state, which is where the birth was actually supposed to happen. It was always a bed that was very richly decorated. There would have been a lot of symbolic meaning to it. And this is where the heir to the throne is supposed to be born. It's a it's a bed that's specifically reserved for the birth of the heir. Like the queen didn't sleep in it uh, while she was getting ready for the birth. The midwives sometimes brought along what they called a groaning chair. And it was something that was designed for a woman to kind of crouch on and she can hold on to it and she can have that physical support while she's going through all the pain. And then the midwife will almost like massage her belly and then somebody will be at the bottom to catch the child it's not a one-size-fits-all operation and that you know even as a a queen that you might have a set idea about how this is going you know like you said with the 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 bed of state um but it's not necessarily going to happen like that and um the mother is going to do what's best for her like we said, the, there would have been a team of midwives, but with the royal person, because there's such kind of a taboo about t- who gets to touch the queen, there would have been kind of like a lead midwife who would actually be the one to touch the queen, you know, especially in her you know, private parts, to be right up front and see the birth happen. And then she would have kind of all of her assistance around her. And her job was much easier if the delivery was smooth. But in the event that there were complications, there were also little tricks that they used to aid the delivery. Uh, one of the ones we were kind of chuckling about before we were recording was that they would give mothers this powder that was designed to make them sneeze because they wanted your muscles to kind of go through that, um, that seizing that they do. If the mother was so exhausted that she couldn't push anymore. 
Yeah, that that there was that one. What was the one that you found about the butter? Yeah, sorry, this is kind of gross, and <laughs> ladies, you will squirm after I say this. <laughs> one of the things was that um, if the baby's crowning, like, um, so if the midwife can see the head of the child, but either the mother is too exhausted to push, or there's some issues with the baby coming out of the birth canal or something, the midwives will actually <laughs> they'll put butter on the woman's labia to kind of like grease it up and try to like get the kid to slide out more efficiently. Excellent. Again, with, with, with the absence of any other information, what slippery, what are you using the kitchen to help slide things in and out? Butter. Okay. Well, that's, that's going to work. What ultimately they were trying to, these midwives are trying to do is have a safe delivery for both the mother and the baby because they understood what could happen after the delivery if things hadn't gone wrong and again like we said a lot of these women are very very experienced ones that are dealing with our queens um they they can spot the signs quite quickly or quite early on if something's not going the way that it should and they know how to to intervene I think the one that made me squirm the most is that if all else fails, that someone was just ramming their hand and pulling out the baby. That kind of turned me a little bit inside out. We we laugh at some of the the tamer things that they would have done, but there were also some things that were actually would have caused a lot of pain if the birth was going wrong. Um, like I'm sure any of us who have watched a period piece have heard mention of the forceps. That was absolutely something that they used if the baby wasn't coming. And as you can imagine, I don't have to go into detail about this. That would be extremely painful for a mother who's already been through some excruciating pain that day. Um, there's also a record of some midwives, like literally kind of, sorry, reaching in there and tying stuff to the baby and then pulling you know, whether it's like a little bit of a, like a hook or um, like a, a tie around the baby's arm or something, anything to try to get the baby out. So they, at some point, they are going to try anything to get that baby and horror ensued. And I think to put that into context again, um, this isn't something that was relegated to the 16th century. For any one of you out there who is listening, who has seen even an episode of Call the Midwife that is meant to be set in, you know, the 50s and 60s um, kind of England, you know, the use of forceps, still a thing. And not to the same extent, because I think people had a bit more knowledge, but these ideas aren't as in the past as I think we'd often like to think that they are, all of them or some of them. So once the baby is delivered, a few things happen. The first thing is that the child is attended to, so they cut the umbilical cord. The umbilical cord, interestingly, in a lot of cases is saved because they think that it has some kind of restorative powers, either magic or real, which is funny because technically, scientifically, they, they do. And then they would wash the child in a mixture of herbs. Um, they would give the baby um, something to quiet the crying if necessary, usually some kind of like brandy or maybe some wine or something. So, you know, the first drink right out of the womb. And then meanwhile, the queen would be attended to by her ladies. Unfortunately for her, because they had to await the afterbirth and they had to kind of monitor her condition, they had to see what, you know, the child was doing and if the child was healthy, she wasn't allowed to sleep traditionally until two hours after the birth. 
I'd be very, very mad at the people around me. <laughs> very bad. <laughs> it's just interesting that even once it's done, like, I don't know, when you watch births in in films or whatever, it's almost like there's this triumphant moment when the baby's born and then it's just, it's suddenly over. And that's not the case at all. The work still continues because you have to make sure that the mother is going to be healthy and she's not showing any signs of like hemorrhaging or infection or whatever. We'll, you know, we'll start to talk about that in the next half. But also the child, like everyone's wondering. So you have to see what the sex of the child is. And then you have to see if the child is healthy, if it's it's if it's going to live if it's crying um if there's some kind of medical issue with the child you have to attend to that and the mother has to be awake technically for that just in case they need her for something a woman could start receiving visitors after two days that was kind of the the time she got to fully recover before she had to really look at anyone and in a lot of cases, that included Henry. Um, you know, Catherine and Anne and Jane wouldn't have seen Henry right away after the birth. It's not like he's pacing outside the door of the confinement chamber or whatever. He wasn't even at the same palace as them. So there would have been a messenger who alerted him to the fact that the queen is in labor and there would have been a lot of anxious people wandering around the palace. Sure, but Henry wouldn't have been there like desperately awaiting the news of the birth of his child, a messenger would have been the lucky one to tell him, for instance, that Jane had given birth to Edward, or the unlucky one who told him that Anne Boleyn had given birth to Elizabeth. It actually would have been a couple of days before anyone was allowed to see her, because then she was allowed to actually bathe, and they gave her a change of clothes, and they helped her to sit up in the bed of state holding the baby, for instance. Then the festivities started of celebrating the new royal baby. For some of the women who did end up succumbing to this process, initially, they might have seemed to have gotten through it with relative ease because, like, Jane Seymour was pretty alert after the birth of Edward, and she went through this process of getting cleaned up and being propped up in bed and receiving visitors. Uh, so, too, did Catherine Parr when she gave birth to her daughter with Thomas Seymour. There were people who came to see the baby and Thomas Seymour was actually there with her. And then after a little while, they noticed that things were starting to go wrong. Jane Seymour was seen as well enough that her, her churching was being planned, um, which is basically a ritual that these queens had to go through, all these women had to go through to basically go to church, make sure that they were kind of clean again and just do a, do a ritual and then they were seen as good to go again and start producing more heirs. So, you know, in case that wasn't enough for everybody. Nothing like going through the process and then immediately thinking about, so when are you going to do it again? Uh, nope. Never. <laughs> do you know what? Ne never, never's enough time for me. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> So as we've been hinting at throughout the episode, this is going to be the half that potentially is a little bit darker and disturbing to some people. So if at any point you feel like you need to skip ahead, please do, because we're going to be talking about some heavy topics. Like we said at the at the start, the statistics are not in the favor of women who give 
birth. It's an incredibly dangerous process. As we've talked about, the pain can be absolutely unbearable in a lot of these situations. So it's important that we do talk about the harsh reality of the process, especially considering that two of our six queens succumbed to the process, um, which is absolutely keeping in line with the statistics of the day, just to show you that noble women aren't necessarily exempt. No, no, it's one of those few experiences that are completely unifying for everybody, doesn't matter where they're coming from or where they're sitting in life. It is, you know, just as dangerous for, for everybody. And it's something you hear being tossed around a lot. Like you'll hear that women, quote, died in childbirth. But one of the things we want to do with this half of the episode is actually talk about what that means. Because, I mean, the entire process of childbirth, like we've been saying, is very feminine and it's shrouded in mystery for a lot of people, especially medical men of the early modern period. So the sort of catch-all phrase of dying in childbirth actually does a lot of work to disguise the actual experience of these women and what they were going through and actually what ended up killing them. I think it's something that we, we owe it to Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr to talk about what their experience was actually like. No, absolutely we do, because I think, like you said, that phrase is very limiting. And I think say to say death in childbirth assumes that it's quite quick or that it's, you know, they, they don't really know what's going on. That is not the case. With both Jane and Catherine, it took them a few days. It's not, I'd imagine, a particularly pleasant way to go. The process of giving birth itself was dangerous for the ways that we already kind of touched on. So not only the pain, but also um, in the event that it was a hard delivery, there might be methods used that actually hindered more than they really helped. So like we said, maybe the use of forceps. That is one aspect of the process that could be damaging down the road. But mostly when we talk about, quote, death in childbirth, the thing we're referring to is in this time called purpural fever. It's, again, kind of a catch-all term for the infection that happens. And it's something that kind of does sneak up on the women. So like we said, both Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr seemed to be okay after the babies were born. I mean, they were exhausted, but like people kind of did a quick assessment of any potential issues and there were none. I mean, Jane Seymour was alert and talking and she was asking her servants to bring her these, um, you know, really rich foods. And they were thinking, yeah, girl, you've earned it. Like you've got through this, you got us a, a, a prince. You if, eat all those rich foods. If anybody's going to be snacky, it's somebody who's just gone through labor for like two and a half days. Yes, have what you want. Catherine Parr's delivery went so well that there was actually time for letters to be exchanged. Thomas Seymour wrote to his brother, Edward, who at this time was the Lord Protector of King Edward, uh, to inform him of the birth of their daughter, who they named Mary. And Edward had time to write a letter back where he congratulated them and he wrote, We are right glad to understand by your letters that the Queen have had a happy hour and escaping all danger hath made you the father of so pretty a daughter. Which is very premature on the part of Edward Seymour. I feel like if, if anything, if life has taught him anything, is to look at what happened to his sister, and we don't send letters a couple of days after. 
the things that women would most commonly succumb to, and we'll talk about specifics for Jane and Catherine in a moment, but the big three were hemorrhaging. So if the birth was particularly traumatic or they used a method that brought on more bleeding or any kind of, you know, tearing or whatever, there would be a lot of hemorrhaging and the, the woman would lose enough blood that she would, um, she would succumb to hemorrhaging. Then if the woman seems to be okay and she got through it, the biggest concerns are um, the, the afterbirth. So they had a, a rudimentary understanding of the delivery of the placenta. And in some cases that still happens today, not all of the placenta comes away. And that can be an extremely dangerous thing because they didn't really understand the concept of that and they wouldn't have any way to help that along if it did indeed happen that it got stuck or something. So that's a big one and a huge cause for potential infection. But the biggest one is something that's called purple fever, which is if you start to show signs of infection. And this can come from a variety of things, like a, a, a ton of different things can be infected, right? This is not a hygienic process in the 16th century. There might be some vaginal tears that nowadays would be stitched up, but in the 16th century were allowed to heal naturally. And in the event that they started to heal but were infected, you would be sh showing signs of a fever. Some of the some of the other things that um, could impact some of these ladies uh, was gangrene, tumors, and ulcers. Just to name but a few, in case the rest of that was not enough for them. And like you said, this isn't necessarily a particularly hygienic process in in the 16th century. You know, germ theory wasn't even a thing till like you know what 1861. So people's understanding of germs and the way that they they work and bacteria it's not it's not a thing. So I'm going to start with Jane Seymour and kind of just talk through a little bit of what she was experiencing. So then maybe we can kind of piece together a story of, of what happened to her. So Jane gave birth in October 1537. It was a long birth, but it was successful in that the baby survived. It was a boy, so double success. And that Jane seemed to be recovering very well to the point that Edward's christening went ahead. She participated in the christening as much as the mother traditionally was allowed to, uh, you know, from her chamber. Henry saw her. Henry saw the baby. She was, you know, dressed and alert and everything was fine. And like we said, she was um, requesting her favorite foods um, because she, you know, thought she deserved it. Almost very suddenly after the christening goes ahead, so in a matter of a few days, uh, we're talking less than a week here. She starts to complain of a fever and nausea. So there's clearly, there's worry about an infection. She was attended through the birth, actually, interestingly, uh, we'll come back to this, by Henry VIII's chief physician, Dr. William Butts, who was like, Henry was such a hypochondriac that his doctor was one of his most trusted close people. So him sending his personal physician to attend Jane was a sign that he really valued her life. And then later it was reported that they noticed she had started bleeding and they prepared her for death once that happened. They, they understood that at this point there was really nothing that they could do except kind of help her through as much as possible to realize what was happening to her. So, you know, they gave her the last rites. And Henry was alerted, although he almost certainly didn't come 
to Hampton Court to see her before she died. But what is interesting at this point is, again, due to a lack of a cause in the sense that we'd understand it, following Jane's death, people were looking for an explanation of what happened and, and why, um, because, you know, everything seemed to go so well. So Thomas Cromwell managed to get himself into a rage and use the attendants as a scapegoat. You know, it was them pandering to her, giving her the food that she wanted and things like that, that ultimately killed her. I think you had a nice quote for that, didn't you? Yeah, that's that's literally what he says. He wrote that the fault of them that were about her suffered her to take great cold and to eat things that her fantasy in sickness called for. Contrast that with the death of Henry and Catherine of Aragon's first son, Henry, he died when he was only two months old. He wasn't very old at all. Initially, Catherine and Henry took it as a sign that they'd had a son and that he, you know, that God had blessed their marriage. And then after he died, they backtracked on that and were thinking, well, actually, maybe maybe we've upset God some some other way or, you know, he, he doesn't favour our marriage. What are we going to do here? So I think, again, what you can see there is the different ideologies of pre- and post-Reformation and those that were kind of surrounding the king at the time. But looking back on this from our kind of modern scientific perspective, we know that it almost certainly was some kind of infection based on her reports of fever. Um, and then it was said that she was, she slipped in and out. You know, there was um, things associated with being in a fever, like you're not quite there. But then the bleeding is the interesting thing. So I've read a lot of articles. There are a lot of modern theories that posit that Jane didn't just sub succumb to an infection. Like we said, maybe like there was some vaginal tearing that didn't heal or got infected or whatever. But actually, maybe that she didn't deliver the placenta completely and that it almost festered in her womb. And that's what the cause of the infection actually was. Uh, this is a theory that's been gaining a lot of traction lately. There would have been nothing that anyone could do if that was the case. So with with Jane, like you said, we have a bit more of an understanding what happened to her and, you know, or at least the most likely thing that was going to uh, happen to her because, you know, as ever, um, with a distance of about 500 years, we're never going to know for certain. The biggest question mark still regarding a childbirth related death, which is I think is a better suited phrase than death and childbirth, is Catherine Parr. While she exhibited some of the same similar symptoms to Jane Seymour, um, she didn't, you know, demonstrate the the, the bleeding and was um, said to be quite delusional and you know in a state of delirium um, towards the end of her life. One of the myths that I want to bust is that a lot of people automatically assume that because by the definition of the 16th century, Catherine Parr was a, quote, geriatric mother. Um, she was 36 when she delivered her child. That that had something to do with it. That some, somehow she had had a bad pregnancy and the delivery had been especially hard on her body. That is not the case as far as we know. The pregnancy, if there had been some, you know, issues or discomfort, they weren't so much that people were overly concerned. And she proceeded with her delivery very normally. And she got through it pretty, like, there are almost no details about the actual birth itself, which tells us that it was fairly normal, right? 
she was at her husband's house in the country, so she would have been very comfortable. He was he was there by all accounts, which certainly would have comforted her. So actually it was a really easy delivery as far as we know, and her age had nothing to do with it. So I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Because as we see from what details we do have about her final days, it was almost certainly, once again, an infection that gave her a, a fever, and that's what she succumbed to. In Linda Porter's biography, she writes that Catherine was showing all of the signs of fever, you know, having a fever, but also um, delirium. Like she would go in and out and she would, she would get very worked up about things. Like there had been a lot of drama in her marriage prior to the birth. And so almost she would start accusing her husband of things that maybe were justified, but you know, he was like, no, I'm here. I'm supporting you. And she's like, oh yeah, you've always been awful to me, you know? Um, and, but then hours later she would be like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And I feel so supported. So she was clearly going in and out a few days after the birth of her child. Like we said, there was enough time for Thomas to announce the birth to his family and to, you know, receive letters back before Catherine started showing signs of being seriously ill. And at that point, she started calling people to her bedside because she kind of understood the likelihood that she wasn't going to survive the process. And it seems to have fed into, like a lot of the delirium was actually a bit of paranoia, I think, because she called a friend and neighbor to come see her. And this neighbor later recorded, um, she wrote that Catherine pulled her close, like she was confessing something to her and said, in a very kind of nervous whisper, I am not well handled for those that be about me careth not for me. So it just goes to show you that like for however many moments of probably calm that she displayed at kind of being aware of what was happening and saying, here are some people I'd like to see before I die. Then she would all of a sudden be like, you know, they're killing me. And that just kind of breaks my heart a little bit. It's such a, a sad way to go where you've kind of got all of that excitement and so much to look forward to and then on top of that with with Catherine she's got that added um delirium that you know in her final days that she doesn't think that she's well looked after and that might extend into her not feeling very loved or very safe I think that's so so sad but one of the the other sad things about this that I think is worth highlighting is we talked about Jane awake and alert and able to kind of revel in her success a little bit. I've done my duty and she she held her son and she she saw her son by all accounts. He was a really pretty baby. So she got to kind of appreciate her hard work and bond with her child a little bit. Catherine didn't get that experience as far as we know. The fever, even though it was delayed by a few days, did hit quickly once it hit. And she never really had a time to kind of connect with her daughter, Mary. It, it, it never probably registered for her that she had become a mother in the same way that it might have for Jane Seymour. She'd taken on that role, but with children that weren't her own. So I think it's such a, sh a shame almost that she was then robbed of that for her own daughter and her own child. The one last sort of bit of myth busting we're going to do kind of in relation to the deaths of Jane and Catherine are the scandal of the male doctors. It's just an interesting coincidence that a lot of historians have picked up on that, like we said, it's very rare for men to be allowed within the confines of the confinement chamber. 
But in the cases of Jane Seymour and Catherine Parr's deliveries, they were actually attended by male physicians, like medical men, which has allowed for a lot of controversy and a lot of discussion about their role in potentially mismanaging the situation. To me, it makes complete sense why that would then be the case that, you know, they would be thought to mismanage the situation. As we, we said quite a few times um, in, the, in the first half, these are uniquely female spaces. They're, they're spaces for female empowerment. And it's not a world of medicine that men are privy to in England. So you may be asking, though, like, why in these cases there were male doctors attending if it's so rare? And it goes back to stress of the situation. When we see male doctors being brought in, it's almost it's an extra special precaution because there's a lot to lose. Right. Not just because the queen is the queen, but because she's potentially carrying an heir. So with Jane Seymour, Henry wasn't taking any risks. Like we said, the physician that he sent for to attend Jane was his personal physician and having him there probably did a lot to calm Henry and calm Jane because they trusted him so much. Similarly, when Catherine of Aragon was giving birth to Mary, who ended up, you know, being her only surviving child, that birth was actually attended successfully by a male physician. We know that he was on the payroll for having done them some service during the delivery of Princess Mary. Whether or not he was actually there attending the birth or he was just dispensing advice is a little bit unclear, but he was consulted just to show you that, you know, there had already been three pregnancies that ended in loss. So we're taking no chances with this one. And it did go well because, you know, Mary survived into adulthood. So it does work out. We're not blaming all men for killing children. But in the case of Jane Seymour, I think even at the time a little bit, but certainly now, you have to wonder how much his personal inexperience actually hindered the situation. Because if she indeed died of an infection, maybe brought on by the fact that um, she didn't deliver all of the afterbirth, that's not something he would have necessarily probably known about as much as a midwife would have. Like you said, I think a lot of the time, like when we see men being brought into these spaces, it is to kind of calm other men. And with Catherine Parr, there wasn't necessarily the pressure of, you know, we this one has to work. It was more that the physician who attended her, who was Robert Hewick, had been somebody who had known her for a long time since she was the Queen of England, who knew her body. So it was a trust factor. And like we said, we, we really don't know much about her delivery, so we can't say for sure whether the infection was something that couldn't have been avoided or if it was something that was caused by some kind of mismanagement. We don't know. But it's just an interesting thing to point out that in these two cases with our queens, that female space was kind of, quote, violated, and then it had the worst possible consequences. So I, I think in the name of wrapping up, lest we'd be here for days on end, the main thing that we wanted to drive home with this element of the conversation kind of links back to what we were talking about at the start, that, you know, these are deeply upsetting for us, you know, with the distance of history experiences, you know, to read about and, and things like that. But again, we need to be conscious of the fact that these are people at the end of the day, and we're talking about people. 
and that these people don't exist independently on in a history book or on a history page you know Henry was left behind by Jane and I think with Henry we get to see a very uniquely vulnerable side to him and I think it's actually really summed up quite nicely you found a quote didn't you that it kind of summed up Henry's grief Henry's kind of famous reaction to the death of Jane Seymour, I think, nicely sums up the dichotomy that we've been talking about in this episode of it being an exciting time and a mystical time of giving new life. But then the reality that it is actually a very violent process that results in the death of two of our queens. When the news spread that Jane had died, Henry began to receive some letters of condolence and he famously replied to one from King Francois of France, and he told Francois that, quote, divine providence has mingled my joy with the bitterness of the death of her who brought me this happiness. And I think that's just, it's perfectly what we've been trying to say, that however glad you are, and if you're Henry, it's a little bit on a more shallow level, right? However glad you are to have the child um, and to be a parent, your wife might not be able to experience that joy with you. And that's the reality of the process. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. In the next episode, Kate and I will discuss royal household, nannies and surrogate parents. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you enjoyed it, please leave a rating and a review. Long live the queens!